19, looking at verses 30 through 38, but we will also be in Deuteronomy 2 some and some other places as well. If you do not have this little map in your, in your possession, hopefully you'll be close to somebody or you might have a map in your Bible that will be something similar to that, but that will help immensely. Um, we're moving up towards Thanksgiving. I must say this is ah, one of my favorite times of year when you just roll down the window in your vehicle and you feel the cool air and the sunshine and ah, it's beautiful. Um, Avery's just got back from Upper Peninsula, Michigan. I imagine that was even more glorious up there. Uh, I've been there and it is a gorgeous place. So, but this is my time of year and, and we are moving up towards Thanksgiving which reminds us of the pilgrims. And the pilgrims originally lived in Scrooby, England. They were also known as separatists because they wanted to separate themselves from the society in which they lived. In England, they felt the pressure of persecution and they sought religious freedom. They didn't come to America at first. They went to Holland at first. And they lived there for some 10 years or so. The people of Holland were welcoming. They were not persecuting them per se. But life in Holland was difficult. It's hard for them to make their way. And uh, as they lived in Holland among the people there, they began to see that their children were being swept up by the looseness of the lifestyle of the Dutch. And so they decide it was time to escape the corruption and start a new colony in America. Now the story of the pilgrims is a part of our heritage as Americans. Uh, The faith of these men and women is inspiring. Their courage and bravery through terrible trials should be something that we emulate. And I don't know what was in the hearts of each of the pilgrims, but I could imagine some of them may have wanted to simply escape all evil. And if that were the case, we should know today, a couple hundred years later, that coming to America did not escape all evil. Every believer is called to be separate from the world around us. We are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We are to love Jesus more than the desires of this life. We are to be separate from sin. At times we are even called to flee temptation, and that might even be geographically. Get away from it, as Joseph did. But Jesus does not give us an escape plan from the world. His plan for us is to be in the world and not of it. And few people had witnessed the evils of the world more acutely than Lot. It is only natural that when he also witnessed the fire and brimstone of God being poured down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that he would want to escape this world altogether. So with that in mind, as an introduction, let's go ahead and read Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. Very sobering passage. Now, Lot went up out of Zor 
and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, before God pours his wrath out upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was very hesitant to flee to the hills. In fact, he pleads with the angel to be allowed to go to a small village called Zor. Before he watched his wife become a pillar of salt, the small town of Zor seemed like a reasonable solution. Some comforts of home, but not living in the hills. But after watching those events, after watching his wife turn to salt, and after watching God's fire and uh, wrath poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is afraid to live in Zor. His fear most likely stems from his observation of the ungodly lifestyles of the Zorites. He likely looks at them and sees the same sort of sins that he saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what would your conclusion be? It won't be long until this place is going to be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. So whereas Lot had to be pushed out of Sodom, now he leaves of his own accord. He is fleeing the world. Lot is willing to live in a cave rather than run the risk of being judged with the Zorites. Little does Lot know that there is no escaping the world. Lot was told by the angels to flee to the hills. That much is true. But I believe that Lot goes a step further when he makes it his lifelong plan to just live in a cave. Abraham was Abraham, Lot's older um, uncle, was not told to live in a cave, right? There's no command that God gives to Lot to avoid all contact with all people whatsoever. 
And so I believe that Lot is acting more out of fear than out of faith. What I find interesting in this section is that God does not intercede at this moment. God might have let Lot know that the cave was a little too much. But God is strangely silent. And I won't really make too much of this today because it will be the point next week when we deal with Sarah with Abimelech. But God, Abraham makes another poor choice and God intercedes and says, whoa, don't do this. So there's a, there's a contrast between God's silence here with Lot and his interceding when it comes to Sarah in the next chapter. That's a, that's a real contrast, but we'll deal with that more next week. Lot no longer has a wife, but he does have two daughters. He is responsible for them, and so they come to live with Lot in the cave. Now grant you, there's not much that we are told at this point of the story. We don't know how long they lived in this cave. We don't know how many conversations Lot's daughters might have had trying to convince their dad that total isolation from the world was not the best solution. But we do know that it was not in Lot's heart to budge. He was probably thinking God's going to destroy this world at any moment and the best thing we can do is be in this cave. And I have tried to wrestle this with this passage looking at it through the eyes of Lot and trying to look at it through the eyes of his daughters as well. And that's not an easy thing to do for obvious reasons. But there are surely generational factors at play. Lot is an older man. He's lived his life. He's lived in Sodom. He's made good choices and bad choices. And he's pretty content to just ride it out to the end in that cave. His daughters are young. Mind you, they were just about ready to get married when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And I can hear the arguments. Dad, I get it. There are risks interacting with people like the people in Zor. But are we supposed to live in this cave forever? We will not have any opportunity to be married at all. How are we to bear children? I don't know why they don't just leave their dad. Maybe they were afraid of the world as well. Maybe they cannot think of letting their dad die in this cave alone. Maybe they understand that they're only alive because of their connection with their dad. From the little we are given, I get no indication that they are living for hedonistic pleasure. Don't think that is what we're seeing here. Nor do I think that they are acting out of hatred for their father. But what is clear in the text is that they do not cry out to God. 
They do not in faith say, God, you have graciously saved us from Sodom. You can help us in our dire situation right now. They are not models of faith at this point. And very much like Abraham and Sarah before, they take a good desire to have children and they begin to try to pursue that through their own means rather than trusting God. So it's not too different than Sarah offering Hagar. And it's interesting, is it not? How often does our sin seem rational in the moment and yet later very foolish? The firstborn daughter comes up with a plan. And the overriding desire is to have children. I think we can understand the desire to have a child. But I don't even really think that the picture is that these these women are just wanting to have the bonds of motherhood with their child. I don't get that feeling either. That's not really what's driving them. They want to preserve their line. They want Lot's name to not end. Now, it is kind of hard for us to understand this. But mind you, put it in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot has been graciously saved by the providence of God from utter destruction. The rest of the Sodomites completely annihilated. So then you ask the question, did you save us out of Sodom simply so that we could die in the cave? Might it not be better to just have died with Sodom if that's all that was going to happen? I don't know if all these things were happening in their minds, but it, it always helps us to try to step out of our world and get into their world and try to understand what might be happening in them. Now, they believe that their only solution is to use their dad as a surrogate father. And they know that this is not good because otherwise they would have just presented the plan to dad. They, they, they purposely hide this from their dad to protect him. They know that he probably would not agree to it. And maybe they wanted to absolve their dad of the moral guilt that he might feel. They use deceit and cunning. And I do believe that this, it's good that this plan seems unthinkable to us. It's clearly wrong on many levels. Instead of escaping evil, they have actually brought it with them into the cave. But I suspect that these daughters might look at our American commitment to abortion and think it unthinkable. I'm not trying to excuse them any more than I try to excuse us. I'm just trying to understand. We are told that their plan works. It works so well that they repeat it again the next night with the younger sister. I find it ironic, like providentially ironic, that you've got Abraham and 
Sarai, 25 years, having trying to have a child, and they can't. And on two consecutive nights, these daughters have kids. I just, I find that, you know, strangely providential. And in a day, unlike our own, where we often say, Woo, I don't want a pregnancy in a rough situation. Can you imagine this is a really rough situation in which to bring a baby, right? That they're coming. We would say, oh, no, no, let's not have a baby. I do believe in their situation, they are looking at having these children as a blessing from God. And I believe we should see these children as a blessing in some limited, limited sense as well. Now, there was a time... In our history, maybe the Puritans, I don't know, but there was a time in our history when an illegitimate child would have themselves been viewed as illegitimate and cursed. I don't think that is the predominant view today, and I'm thankful for that. And I would tell you that I believe that the history of this story bears itself out that God does not immediately curse the children of the older daughter or the younger daughter. You have to understand that the book of Genesis is is a part of the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. And so Moses is writing this to his audience as they're in the desert before they go into the promised land. And there is a huge contrasting difference between the way that God calls the Israelites to deal with the people of Canaan from the way he calls them to deal with the Moabites and the Ammonites. In verse 38 of this this passage, it says, He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. It is also saying in the father of the Moabites to this day. To this day refers to Moses with his people as they are preparing to go into the promised land. Now, for Mo, most of us, the name Moabite and Ammonite sound very much like all the other names of the Canaanites. So if I were to ask you on a quiz, could you define the distinction between an Ammonite and an Amorite, how would you do? Very poorly. But to the Israelites, huge difference. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, and he goes through, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and he goes on. He says in verse 2, you are to devote them to complete destruction. Now this is strong, and, and of course, I... I don't want to go all the way back to confuse you, but in Genesis 15, we saw that God had said that the Amorites were going to be destroyed by your, by, 
Abraham's descendants 400 years after his death as they go into the promised land because at that time their sin would have been complete. I don't understand exactly how God determines when our sins are complete or not. (laughs) But there's something, the idea that God will bring judgment on people when he's ready to bring judgment on people. And you should not do it before then. And as as the Israelites are going into the promised land, they are to recognize that God is bringing judgment on the Canaanites. Their time is complete. And it's just like God bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, only he's using his people to do it under Joshua. Okay. Hard, difficult thing. I don't understand how all that works together. Turn back to Deuteronomy 2. And pull out your little map. You have your map. If you look here, you have the promised land, but you have the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and the Sea of Galilee. So you have this land is divided to land on the west and land on the east. Well, Israel is making its way up the eastern coast on the opposite side of the Jordan. And you'll see there, there's the kingdom of Edom, there's the kingdom of Moab, and there's the kingdom of Ammon. Three of those kingdoms. And to make a long story short, the kingdom of Edom is our descendants of Esau. We haven't got to Esau yet. That's you know Jacob and Esau. But that, they're part of uh, the covenant community that has gone awry. Um, when we look at Moab and Ammon, they too are somewhat connected to the covenant community because they're descendants of Lot, but they too have gone astray. So these are like connected to the covenant, but not actually in the covenant. So that's what we got here. And they're going up there, and God uh, says to them explicitly, do not take these people out. In fact, God even talks like he fought for the people of Esau, for the people of Moab, for the people of Ammon, actually using his power to help them overcome the kingdoms that, that were there originally so that they could own that land. And he says it's for them as a possession. And he does this because they are descendants of Lot. Once he gets past Ammon, once he gets up to the kingdom of Aram and of Damascus, then he says again, wipe them out. Okay? Now, we have to ask the question, why is God doing this? Why is he honoring these kingdoms? And just mind you, can you imagine, this is, this is off the cuff, but I'm just thinking about our own issues with immigration, and they say that maybe over the past year we've had uh, a million immigrants come across our borders or whatever. Now, the Israelites are probably two million plus can you imagine a two million plus group of people walking right through your, your country? I mean, it would be fearful, <laughs> you know. And so it's a pretty amazing thing to think about that, that God says, it'd just be nice to them, whatever. Okay. What do I think's happening here? I believe that God is being merciful to the descendants of Lot. As long as there are descendants of Lot, 
those descendants have an opportunity to be saved. I would say that even though that there's no statement that the kingdoms of Ammon or Moab or even Edom are good, I would argue, maybe from silence, but I would argue that their sins have not reached their completion. And God wants them to be there. And he's being merciful to them. He's giving them an opportunity to turn to God. Isn't it amazing how God takes his chosen people right through their land? It would be nice if they began to say, oh, that's where the promise is. And they could actually embrace the promise. They do not at this point. But later on, some do. Who's one of our most famous Moabites? Ruth. God will take a Moabite and bring them into his kingdom. So as long as God has not brought the final destruction on any people, like Sodom and Gomorrah, as long as he hasn't done that, then there's room for that people to still come to to the repentance and faith. So I believe God is being merciful. I don't think God wants us to just immediately say, oh, you could bring judgment, so let's just run for our lives and go to the hills and be in a cave. No, you are going to use your people to call even ungodly nations back to the truth again. Danny did a very good job in the call to worship today, helping us to understand our task, as long as we are here and God has not finished this world, our task is to be a light to the world and to call people to repentance and faith. And if you are here today, remember that you too were a a person under the wrath of God that God has just plucked from the fire and brought. He doesn't pluck you out just so that you can run. He's plucked you out because he wants you to use you to call the world to himself. Now, I'm not saying that God will not eventually judge the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Edomites, because he will. But at this time, they are there for a reason, and I think part of it is to give mercy to them. At the same time, and this is the second point, I believe that God is using these peoples and their continued embracing of false gods as a test to his own people. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. And again, I remind you that all five books of the Pentateuch are one uh, volume, so to speak, that you're supposed to read as a unit. In Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, while Israel lived in Shittim, you don't know this, but Shittim is, is in the realm of Moab, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, so while God has graciously left these kingdoms here, these kingdoms provide an incredible temptation to his own people. And I ask you the question, why doesn't God lead his people a different way into the promised land? Why take them right through where these people would be too much of a temptation? 
It just so happens that God gives us the answer. You don't have to turn there. But in the book of Judges, God explains that he actually left some of the Canaanites alive in the promised land for a very specific purpose. And I think he's going to also, that would apply to Moab as well. And this is what he says. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war and to teach those who had not known it before. You see, God doesn't want you to just escape the world. He wants to teach you how to fight against the world. That's the plan. He wants you to know war. Now, I know that it's not, uh, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood today. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. I know that our war is, is using weapons of the word of God and prayer and spirit and walking by faith in the promises. That's how we fight the war. But we are in a war. It is a real war. And the answer is not to escape the war. It wasn't any more to escape the war in Lot's day than it is in our day. I appreciate Avram when I was teaching the youth group, but I, I warning him over and over again against all of the evils of the world that are that are trying to grab hold of his heart. And he says, But this is the world in which I have to live. And he's absolutely right. There's no way to escape the world. We have to begin to say this, you know, suck it up. <laughs> this is what we got to deal with. This is the life that we have. I met with Coleman this past week, and I said, Coleman, do you realize most kids your age walk away from Jesus? If you do not understand how powerful that is, you miss the point. We can't go live in a cave. We can't go find some island. I love all your illustrations up in a, upper Canada or something that we could go find. We're not going to go off-grid. Although my heart sometimes would like to do that. Isn't it comforting to know that God says, I know you want to be out of this. I know you just want the battles to be over. I know you just want to find rest. I I get it. I know you want that. But I'm putting you here for a reason. I want you to fight. Now, if you understand that... You understand that even though you're not called to escape the world permanently, God knows you need rest. He calls himself your strong tower. He tells you that that you do need to find place to hide at times. He doesn't want you to hide all the time. But he wants you to hide at times. And you know where I think he gives you? I think he gives you his Sabbath. A holy day of which you can pull away from the world and rest. I think he gives you worship among God's people. To come together. To find time to... Somebody I can can interact with and think like me and encourage me. Because I know that I'm going to have to go back out into the battle and fight it again tomorrow. I think he gives us the Lord's Supper as a place where you can understand that you draw your strength 
not from your human strength, not from yourself. You are drawing your strength to fight the battle from the Lord Jesus Christ and from his death and resurrection. It's interesting that the, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites are, um, are eventually judged. Uh, they are eventually taken out by God and said, that's it. But it's not because of what happened with Lot, or Lot and his daughters. It's, it's because they continue to hate God's church. It's because they, they continue to not repent of their sins and, and try to seek God and his righteousness and trust in his promises. That's why. And it's interesting that in Jeremiah, God actually warns his people that you too could become like Sodom and Gomorrah if you don't fight the battle. It's never about what happened in your past as much as what's going on today in your heart. Are you trusting in the Christ? Are you repenting of your sins? Are you clinging to the gospel? That's what life is about. And that's what will keep you from going the way of the world. There's a, a song that I appreciate called For All the Saints, and this is an old uh, singing church hymnal. Um, and we have this in the, in the Trinity hymnal, but in the singing church there's a verse that I find particularly helpful, and we used to sing it all the time in praise and prayer. Um, so I'm going to sing, or I'm not going to sing, Savior, I'm not going to sing, <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. He says, Oh, bless communion. Fellowship divine, we feebly struggle. They in glory shine. He's talking about the saints who have died and gone before us. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. So there's, you want to you have that, that, that freedom, that escape from the fight? Well, some of your brothers and sisters are there, and you're one with them. They had their battle, you got yours, and you're not finished with yours yet. And then I love the next line. And when the strife is fierce, and the warfare long, you know, you're just about ready, I can't go another day, help me. Whatever the battle, I know all your battles are different. You're dealing with different issues. But whatever, you get to the point where you just like, can I keep going? He says, steals on the ear. In other words, this, this song, this, this uh, noise comes up on the ear quickly. The distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again. And arms are strong. If I could count the number of times I was ready to just quit. And somehow God uses, whether it's the saints that went before me, whether it's the prayers of other people, as Danny said, the prayers of Jesus, somehow there's a distant voice of the triumph song, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to keep fighting. I will not quit this battle. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Oh, say, Jesus, listen, take it a little easy on me today. That's what you're praying. I'm weak. I can fail. Be merciful to me. But deliver us from evil. Lord, help me to overcome. Jesus says to Peter and to the church, I think in general, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. We're not fleeing hell. We are taking the gospel and the victory of Christ right to its gates. It's hard to remember that. But by his grace, we will conquer. Amen.